Welcome back to another episode of GEMS Podcast with Genesis Amaris Kemp, where the core pillars are to educate, inspire, and motivate. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this segment. Welcome back to GEMS Podcast. I'm your host, Genesis Amaris Kemp, and with me today is Sandy Phillips-Kirkham, and here is a bit about Sandy. Sandy and her husband enjoy life with their two grown children, two granddaughters, and two fairly well-behaved dogs. They reside in Cincinnati, Ohio. After experiencing clergy sexual abuse at the age of 16 by her youth pastor and remaining silent for 27 years. She now uses her voice to advocate for victims and changes in the church. She has spoken before the Ohio Senate and a Maryland court. She serves on the board of COCA, Council on Child Abuse, is a spokesperson for the Hope of Survivors Ministry, and she tells her story in her book, Let Me Pray Upon You. And without further ado, please welcome Sandy Kirkham to GEMS Podcast. Hello, it's good to be here. Likewise, um, Sandy, it's just such an honor to get to unpack your story and just seeing you you having to find your voice and now you found it and now you're advocating, you know, so you're taking that pain and that anger that you went through and you're using it for the good of yourself and others so they don't have to be silenced for that long. So if you don't mind, can we kind of go into how did being sexually abused at that young age affect you personally and professionally? Well, um, for 27 years, as you said, I remained silent because I had felt um, guilt and shame for something I thought that I had done. I thought that I had helped and participated in this relationship when in fact, that wasn't the case. But so I never saw this abuse. I simply thought that I'd had an affair with a married man. Um, and so having had someone sexually violate you, who is a man of supposedly a man of God and within the church walls, certainly impacted my life in the long term spiritually. I talk about that in the book called Chapter Spiritual Wounds. It's it his relationship and his violation of me contaminated almost every aspect of the church for me and it affected how I saw my life spiritually. It made a huge disconnect between God and me because I didn't feel worthy. Um, I felt guilty and I couldn't, it, even though in my mind I could separate this wasn't something that God had done, it was difficult emotionally to separate myself and to navigate how, I, how God fit into all of that. I never blamed God and I didn't think he was at fault for it. But when you've been a, sexually abused by someone who is meant to be a man of God and who tells you he's a man of God, it really does mess with your mind and how you perceive your religious and spiritual life. So in that sense, um, you know, I had difficulty going to church. It was always a trigger for me to be in church. I went to church because I wanted my kids to have that experience, but I could never really connect to church. I did. I never prayed after the abuse. It, I was someone who prayed daily before the abuse. I read my Bible every day. 
Um, I was very spiritual. I, I, I loved my church. I loved everything about it. And all of that changed um, after his abuse. And so in the long term, that's how it affected me spiritually. In other ways, it affected me because I was having the burden of keeping the secret for 27 years. And so I spent a great deal of time worrying that someone would find out about my past. Part of um, my shame was also the result of the fact that the church, when they found out, about, found out about his actions, instead of disciplining him, he was given a going away party, he was moved to the next church, and I was called into the church and told because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And so that too in, in a, had an impact on me in the sense that you know I felt this shame that was put upon me because I was told I wasn't fit to or worthy enough to worship in a church. And I can remember thinking, how bad do you have to be to be thrown out of a church? Pretty darn bad, I think. And so I didn't want my friends to know that. I didn't want my husbands to know this, this evil past that I had, that again, I put the burden on me that this was something that I should feel ashamed about. In reality, you know, it was always his responsibility to maintain those boundaries. And as one of the shepherds, he was to protect and guide the sheep, not devour one of them. And that's what he did when he took my virginity, when he took my soul and really dirtied everything about it for me. That's kind of a long answer, I think, to your question. But um, that's how it affected me in the long term. Wow. And thank you so much for sharing that, because I know sometimes it is hard to talk about some of those traumas that you have gone through with life, because if you don't fully heal from those traumas, it could, you know, trigger it. And then next thing you know, if you keep picking at that wound, that wound right. is going to open back up and bleed. But right. now that you are fully healed from that, you can go back to that place of hurt and talk about it because you've moved forward and did the abuse just happen one single one time or did uh, it hap happen repeatedly no it, it happened repeatedly uh, how it kind of started was that um he started grooming me and telling me how wonderful I was and how much he needed me in the church and he was always giving me special places in the church to do activities I was a song leader he was always putting me on committees and so you know I was enjoying that intention this was from a man that everyone loved in the church he was very charismatic and so for me, I felt very special. So it started out very subtly and very, very innocently, actually. But as it went along, he began to start to physically touch me in certain ways um, that, you know, maybe I think they weren't okay, but it, he was my pastor, so I didn't want to accuse him of something. But the real key came that I babysat for his family and his wife worked evenings. So that gave him the perfect opportunity to then take advantage of me. And slowly over time, um, it was after a youth group meeting at my home. He waited for one to leave and he bent down and kissed me. And I remember feeling shocked. I, I kept thinking, I, I think he just kissed me, but this is my pastor. He, he wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. And it was kind of this quick, innocent kiss. And I kind of just brushed it off because was he really the only way I knew how to deal with it? I, I just thought, well, this is just something I should just you know ignore because it's, it means nothing. But as the year went on, he would gradually, you know, begin the kissing intensified. He, the hugs were longer. He was beginning to create a dependency upon him for me. Um, I, I was, I really needed the uh, attention. My parents were divorced. I didn't see my dad very much. And so he was filling that role or at least pretending to fill that role. You know, he tapped into my vulnerabilities and then he took advantage of those. So up 
took about a year and uh, one night uh, I was at his home babysitting and he just pushed me on the floor and started undressing me. And um, I describe in the book how he began to take me up to the steps to his bedroom and I felt frozen. I felt frozen. And I remember thinking he's going to stop. And of course he didn't. And, and once he had sex with me, that really crossed the boundary. And I knew that was wrong, but I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, he kept reassuring me this was okay, that we were married in God's eyes. I had lost my virginity to him. So therefore I belonged to him. And at 16, 17, this is, you know, I'm trying to process all this. And I did look up to him and I did trust him. So I was, I was going back and forth between what do I do about this? And, and maybe I should be you know, committed to him. So to answer your question in the long run, it, the abuse lasted for five years. Um, it, it, was, it went on until I was 21 years old. And that only ended because um, a couple people in the church became suspicious and followed him one night and found us in a hotel room. And again, um, you know, he was called in by the elders. Uh, I don't know what narrative he told them. I don't know what he said. I was never asked any questions. I was just simply told after he was gone that I was to leave the church as well. And, um, and I did, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. Um, I love that church. And I've often said the reaction of the church probably had more of an impact on my spiritual life than his actual abuse did because I never got over being told that a place where we ta were taught about forgiveness, a place that we were taught we could be loved in spite of our sin, I was told I couldn't be. And my self-esteem was so low at that point anyway. I had gotten to a point um, having sex with this man over and over, you know, he was married, he had two children. I, I finally had to just accept that I was this no good person who was going to continue this relationship and I couldn't get out of it. And so I was at a very low point in my life. And so when the church told me I couldn't stay there any longer, it, it, it was rock bottom for me. It was rock bottom. Wow. And thank you so much for just opening, opening up. And the reason why I wanted to go a little bit deeper there, Sandy, was because there are women in the church who are being abused currently mm -hmm. by someone of the pastoral staff and they don't feel like they have a safe place to talk about it because they don't want to be judged or if they go to quote unquote maybe that man's wife then she may put the blame on that mm -hmm. woman or um, let's flip it here because it could happen to a young boy too absolutely if if he goes to somebody else and and says it, then he can be judged. And, you know, the church is, you know, more than the four walls. It's supposed to be a place where you go there as your safe haven and your protection. And they teach you all of these principles. But then whenever something like this happens, it makes people question their spirituality. Like you mentioned, it makes them question religion as a whole, no mm -hmm. matter what church they're in. And then some people just go from being a believer to an atheist because they are so broken, bruised, and wounded from the trauma of going through something. They feel like if a God is so sovereign and he says that he loves me and he He is a hedge of protection, why would he allow this to happen right. to me? Right. But there is, wait, go ahead, Sandy. Well, I, I wanted to touch on one point before we get too far down the road when we talk about why people you know, are silent and they won't come forward. You have to remember that our abusers pound into our heads over and over and over again. No one's going to believe you if you tell anyone. 
And if you do tell someone, you're going to be in trouble. And we don't know what that trouble is, but our abusers are so good at gaslighting us and reminding us that we're going to get in trouble and that no one's going to believe us. And in fact, I can remember thinking, why would anyone believe me? I can't believe this is happening to me either. And I was afraid, you know, I was afraid to tell anyone. I shouldn't have been in the sense that there were people around me who did support me afterwards that I could have told. But in, I tell people just because you can see a way out doesn't mean there is a way out. And our, our abusers are so good at controlling us that we lose sight of the fact that we have a voice to be able to tell someone. And so, and then the other thing is, there's two other aspects to that. You know, if I were to tell anyone, I felt like I would be telling on myself as well, because I would have to be admitting this was something I was doing as well. And keep in mind, our abusers keep us in this limbo of treating us badly on one hand, but treating us wonderful on the other hand so that they can keep us under their control. And there's, there's a, victims have a, a need to kind of protect their abusers in some sense because they don't want to get them in trouble either. Um, Susan Forward talks about the acronym FOG, F-O-G. Victims remain silent out of FOG, fear, obligation, and guilt. And those three aspects keep victims silent um, out of fear. They feel obligated to their abuser and they feel guilty. Wow. And thank you so much for sharing that because I had no idea that there was an acronym. So FOG, fear, mm -hmm. obligation, obligation, guilt, guilt. Wow. And all of those things that plays into the victim's vulnerability. Correct. Wow. And thank you for bringing that to the forefront because it is important to talk about it in that context. And let's talk about um, silence because you were silenced for 27 years. Mm -hmm. And part of that had to do with the fog that you just mentioned. But mm -hmm. then over time, you found your voice, which mm -hmm. was your inner strength, and you became who you are now, but it wasn't easy. So was there a period where you went through therapy, so you could kind of unpack some of those keys so you could reopen those locked doors? I, I didn't go to therapy, although I would highly suggest it. Um, I had a friend who was a counselor, and then I had two other friends who were very spiritual and very active in their church. And between the three of them, um, they really acted as my therapist, but I never saw anyone professionally. But I certainly think victims um, seeking professional help is certainly something that they should consider if, if they can. Um, for me, you know, I was going to go to my grave with this secret. I had no intentions of ever talking about this. It wasn't, and I, and victims will tell you this, it's not like we're waiting till our kids are grown or we're gonna wait until we feel settled or we wait until we feel this or that. We most of the time are gonna keep this secret no matter what. And in most cases, uh, what happens is there's a trigger or there is an event that forces the victim to have to say, I gotta deal with this now. The average age for victims to come forward is 52 after they've been abused as children or as minors. I was 49 when I came forward. So you have to, I think it's important to understand that dynamic that we aren't looking to tell anyone. We're, we're holding this secret as tightly as we can. What happened with me, and, and this is the first chapter of the book, I had a trigger that happened to me that forced me, I, I, it, I totally lost it. I was um, traveling down a road to see my daughter playing a golf tournament out of town. And I happened to pass the city, the sign, to where my abuser moved after he left our church. And it sent a trigger into me that 
sent me to the side of the road. I, I couldn't function. I, I sobbed, got out of the car, sat by the side of the road on this expressway. And it was at that point, I couldn't pinpoint exactly, but I knew something was wrong and that whatever he did wasn't my fault and that he had no right to do it. And I felt this huge sense of sadness. At first, it finally occurred to me that this man didn't love me. This man didn't care for me in any sense. This was someone that had used me. And I felt this incredible sadness that someone could do that to another human being. I took about three or four weeks after that incident because I thought, well, okay, whatever this is, I'm gonna push it back down. It took me two or three, four weeks to finally start to grasp the idea that I needed to tell someone. So I told my best friend and that began to open the door, but it's not like you unlock the door and it just blows wide open and everything comes out. It's, it's piece by piece because you know, the trust factor isn't quite there. I, you know, I wasn't sure how my story would be received. And can I tell all of my story? I mean, there's very parts of my story that are very embarrassing. Um, I go into this into the book. And so to finally reveal that um, is, it, it's, it's, it, it's dangerous and to us. We feel danger, there's danger out there if we reveal this. So anyway, I first told my friend and then eventually through talking with her and then I, I started educating myself on what clergy sexual abuse was. I started learning the terms grooming, manipulation, gaslighting, all of those things opened up my eyes to say, this is what this man had done to me. This wasn't a love affair. This wasn't someone who cared about me. And once I understood that, I was then able to let go of the guilt and the shame. Didn't happen overnight. I would say my healing took about two years and I'm still continuing to heal. I still have triggers, um, but, once I was able to let it go, I was freeing myself of this guilt and shame. Now, one of the things that for me, I felt I needed to do was to confront this man. So I hired a private investigator. I didn't know if he was still alive. It was 27 years since I had any contact. Uh, I did find him ministering in a church in Alabama and I confronted him. And for me, that was important. Um, I was, I would say that I didn't get the satisfaction that I, I had hoped to get, but I still am glad that I had that opportunity to do that. Um, and at that point, I remember thinking, okay, I'm done. I'm finished. I will put this behind me. I've confronted him. I've dealt with it. Move on. Well, I think God had other plans because at that point, I began to realize I wasn't finished, that my story was important and that someone could learn and maybe heal from my story. Because one of the things that I kept thinking about was what if I'd heard someone's story or experience when I was going through my own abuse? Maybe it would have given me the courage to speak up. Maybe I would have realized I wasn't alone because almost all victims will say, I thought I was the only one this was happening to, or I knew this happened, but not the way it's happening to me. And so to have been able to have heard someone else's story at the time would have been powerful for me. And so I felt I had this obligation to talk about my experience and perhaps in some way touch another victim and give them hope and healing. Mm. And I'm so proud that you were able to confront him because I was gonna ask you as you were talking the forgiveness piece because people for, forget about forgiveness and forgiveness mm -hmm. is not necessarily for the other person, but it's for you to let go so you could be free in order for you to move on. Because things that are hid and cover up 
don't get healed. And over time, it starts to eat away at right. you internally. And before you know it, something is going to happen that sends you on a downward spiral because that trigger exasperated. Right. And then you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? But what happened was that you never took time to pull back, reflect, and go through the healing process so you could be whole and complete. And what I tell people is think about the potter's wheel. The potter's wheel still works. If something is imperfected, what do they do? They get it, they smash it down, put it back on the potter's wheel and start molding it again. Mm -hmm. And that's how we are as individuals. We're moldable, but until we get to the point where we will allow God to work in and through us and we will allow ourselves to step outside of that hurt and pain so we could get back on our road to recovery, then we're going to keep replaying and repeating right. the trauma. So, uh, you know, so let me say some things about forgiveness. One, I think it's important. No victim should ever be told they should forgive. And, and oftentimes the church is very quick to say, well, God forgives for our sins and, and you should forgive him. And so I think it's important to allow victims to take that time to have the healing and the understanding and some of the anger that they need to feel in the beginning before someone is sent to them, you need to forgive. So I, I think it's important that we don't push victims toward forgiveness. I think it's also important that people understand what forgiveness does mean. As you said, it's un, I call it unburdening ourselves from our abusers. It's unburdening ourselves from the past. And it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Sometimes people misinterpret that we forgive this person, so therefore we're going to allow them to continue um, and go on without any consequences. There are consequences to all behaviors. It doesn't also, forgiveness does not mean that we remain silent. Churches often were, are very apt to say, well, you know, you said you'd forgive him, so why do you keep talking about it? I've been told that more than once. That's, silence is not about, I need to forgive so I can't talk about my experience and what, what I went through. Um, it is about unburdening yourself. And what I, I finally came to understand was all the hurt and the anger that I was carrying around wasn't, as you said, hurting me. It was hurt, hurting him. It was hurting me because I couldn't live the life I was meant to live because I was living in this anger. And I can remember waking up one day and I just was thinking about him and I thought, I'm just so angry at this man. And I'm so angry at what he took from me. And I thought, I'm going to ruin my entire day because I'm thinking of this man. And do you think he's waking up in the morning thinking about me? No, he's going about his day. He doesn't give me a second thought. I was allowing him to still be a part of my life. I didn't want him in my life anymore. But as long as I kept reminding myself of the anger, I was reminding myself of him. And this didn't happen overnight. And I certainly took steps backwards. That doesn't say there aren't days when I get a little, I think about it and I have a, a moment of anger because I have a right to be angry for what this man took from me and what he did to me. You know, a justifiable anger is, is okay. Um, but I couldn't let that dominate my life. And you were so right to say that it only hurts the victim. It's like the analogy I've seen is that it's like drinking acid or poison and expecting the other person to die. It just, it, it, it's no good for anyone. And whether you want to use the word forgiveness, because that can be a trigger, you just say, I'm going to, I'm going to let go of it and unburden myself from this man. And, um, 
I, I, I hope that that can happen for most victims because your healing doesn't necessarily mean you can't heal if you don't forgive, but it makes it more difficult. And I think your healing can be um, stronger um, if you can in some way forgive. And thank you for elaborating on that because I haven't been through that form of trauma. So I want to make sure that I'm not using anything that is triggering mm -hmm. to any of our listeners that may be stuck in this predicament or they haven't fully walked out their recovery yet. Mm -hmm. So Sandy, when you found your voice finally, did you let your husband know what happened to you and how did that help with your relationship, if any? Um, you know, I have a wonderful husband and I should not have had any fear in telling him about this. But again, after 27 years, I still could not get the sound of that man's voice out of my head saying, don't ever tell, don't ever tell. And because the reaction of the church and some of the people in the church, I knew that I could be judged. I knew people might judge me. And the one person that I couldn't risk judging me would be my husband. And, and, I, and I thought, well, he could have legitimate questions like, why, why didn't you trust me to tell me this before? Or would he see me different sexually? I had all these fears that were truly unfounded. But again, when you're, you've been traumatized, your trauma takes over your ability to think clearly. Uh, your trauma starts to think for you instead of allowing you to look at the picture in a way that you would normally look. But I did eventually tell him because I needed to tell him. I, I mean, I couldn't keep this from him any longer. Um, the chapter in the book is called number 40. I won't reveal why that's the number I gave him, but he was very kind. He was very loving. He was angry at this person. His concern was for me and how this was affecting me. He was concerned at this point when I told him I wanted to confront this man. Um, I think he was concerned about that, um, how it would affect me. And it, I think he was worried that I, my expectations of confronting my abuser would be higher than what I would get in return. And in reality, that was true, but I was, I was able to handle that. So all of his concern was wrapped around how this affected me. And the, the best advice, or I guess that he gave me, he looked at me and he said, no one knows what you've been through, but you, and you need to do whatever it is you need to do to heal. And so he really gave me the gift of saying, I'll support you. I may not agree with way you're handling things, or I may question whether or not that's the best thing for you, but it's not my place to do that. You are the only one who can tell and know where you need to go for your own healing and peace of mind. Wow. And thank you for sharing that because the way that your husband responded to you after you shared this was out of grace and compassion and mm -hmm. letting you walk through this on your own, but then also from a supportive standpoint as a male figure who was now prominent in your life. And, you know, not everyone may be fortunate to have right. that type of reaction. So that is um, amazing. And as we wind down, Sandy, would you like to leave the listeners and viewers with some tips to finding their voice or your call to action? for this segment? Well, to find your voice, the, the most important, I think, for me at least, was understand and believe that what was done to you was not your fault. This wasn't something that just happened. You were targeted for your vulnerabilities. You should have been a, 
trust in a trusted place with the safest place on earth. And you should have trusted this individual who was there to care for you. So no matter what you think you could have done, should have done, you did the best you could with the coping skills you had at the time or that you have at this moment. So it's not your fault. Secondly, I would say to victims, you need to educate yourself, learn all you can about grooming, manipulation, gaslighting, Google and find out what clergy sexual abuse is because it is somewhat separate and different than abuse from a family member or even a stranger. I mean, it's all horrific, but that added dimension of a spiritual guide abusing you changes the, the dynamics somewhat. Uh, I have some excellent books in the back of my book that I would recommend for reading um, because you need to understand. If you don't understand, then you're going to respond. Your healing is going to be responded in a different way because you're going to continually blame yourself. And as far as finding your voice, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from someone who spent 27 years keeping a secret. So I understand how hard it is to find your voice. I wasn't ever going to speak about this. But when we speak our truth, it frees us. And when they talk about the truth will set you free, you, it, it's so empowering to be able to finally say, I was sexually abused by my priest, or I was sexually abused by my rabbi or pastor or my choir director. Those are powerful words that if you can let them out. And I would recommend finding someone that maybe isn't in the church initially, because you never know what that reaction might be. And those people have a connection to that pastor or priest or rabbi. And so they may have a different um, response than someone maybe who has no connection to that particular person. Um, but finding your voice is so important and it's possible and healing is possible. And I would encourage victims and those who know of someone who may have been abused to help them find their voice. And thank you for sharing that, um, Sandy, and just really coming on here and just sharing your truth with our audience today. And for anyone who's interested in connecting with you further, please plug your website and where they can find you on social media. Uh, I am on uh, Facebook. I'm also uh, have a website, which again, I would recommend just for knowledge. If someone's interested to find out more about this topic, there's a lot of good information there. Uh, my website is just my name, which is kind of long, but it's Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, uh, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M, dot com. I'm also, um, my book is, um, I'll hold that up here. Um, I do love my title. <laughs> um, it, it's available on Amazon and it's also available on my website. And um, so you can find more uh, about me there. Uh, I've been, again, I would encourage people who just might want to find out about the topic to, to check out my website. And there you have it, listeners and viewers of GEMS Podcast. Once again, I am the founder and host, Genesis Amaris Kemp, and you just heard Sandy Phillips Kirkham. We talked about overcoming trauma. We talked about healing from trauma and finding your voice. I want you to use your voice because there's only one voice that is uniquely tied to you and it's yours. You are here for a reason. You were created for such a time as this. And remember, something that is buried does not heal until you dig it up and you really connect with it. So until we chat next time, peace, love, and lots of blessings. Don't forget to subscribe and share this segment. We're on 40 plus platforms and follow us on YouTube at GEMS 
with Genesis Amaris Kemp for all things video content. Until next time, ciao. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another segment of GEMS Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this recording. Make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe to GEMS Podcast on your audio platform, as well as our YouTube channel, GEMS with Genesis Amaris Kemp. We would love for you to be a sponsor, so please reach out via email at GEMS, G-E-M-S, with W-I-T-H, Genesis, G-E-N-E-S-I-S, Amaris, A-M-A-R-I-S, Kemp, K-E-M-P, at gmail.com, where your brand, your swag, your services could be here on GEMS Podcasts.